Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we'll be talking to Professor Mark Finster about his new book, The Transparency Fix, Secrets, Leaks, and Uncontrollable Government Information. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Beth. It's nice to be here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a law professor at the University of Florida, where I have been since 2001, mostly on, a little bit off. And uh, I therefore live most of the time in Gainesville, Florida. Prior to that, uh, I was a practicing lawyer for about three years, clerked for a federal judge and worked for a small um, uh, public interest environmental and land use firm in Northern California. Prior to that, I was a law student. Prior to that, I'd gotten a PhD and actually taught undergraduates for about four years. My PhD was in communications and cultural studies. And um, that is pretty much my professional story in a nutshell. Well, thanks again for joining us. I wanted to start and talk a little bit about the title, The Transparency Fix. Um, What is The Transparency Fix and how did the book come about? So The Transparency Fix itself comes from the idea that if only government can disclose the information or really is forced to disclose the information that it holds, that our government and our democracy would function the way it was designed and the way it ought to design, uh, that it ought to run. So excessive secrecy is what keeps us from having the kind of efficient and functional government that we need and the kind of democracy that we deserve. Uh, People don't know enough about what government is doing, and government is keeping too many secrets. There's a reverse version of that, uh, which is also equally important and equally uh, magical in its assumption, which is that if only the government can properly keep secrets, that is, if only government can hold fast to the information that it has that it cannot release, then again, we would have a government and a national security system that would be more functional and more efficient, and we would have a nation that's more secure. And as you can see with both of these, uh, the idea is that we can fix the problems that we have 
by securing information, either securing it by forcing it to be disclosed or securing it by uh, keeping it secret. Um, now, how this sort of how this project came into existence, um, th- there are two things, two sort of stories in my life that uh, that had some influence on my interest in this topic. Uh, the first of them was prior to going to law school, I had written a book on conspiracy theories. And the first edition of it came out in 1999. Uh, and I ended it with a real flourish of, I believe that uh, it, it was a book that was that, that tried to complicate our understanding of conspiracy theories and said that conspiracy theories aren't necessarily bad. They're not good, but they're not necessarily bad. They're in fact quite pervasive. They're not just on the margins. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I, that, that one of the points that I made to close is that if only government kept fewer secrets, it would be more legitimate and we would have less belief in crazy conspiracy theories, that, that people would be more engaged in the actual reality of government and uh, power. Uh, and I, the, uh, time has passed. Uh, I have worked as a lawyer. Uh, for government and sued government and have decided that that was in fact not true. Uh, and one of the, so, so you know, I, I, I learned after having said one thing in the first edition of the book and then changing it somewhat in the second edition of the book, that transparency, government transparency, will not fix people's belief in wrong things or willingness to believe in things that are not true. Uh, the second story that I would tell, which is a different point uh, that I make in the book, is that when I was a lawyer in Northern California, um, I worked, uh, my, my firm was on the public interest side of things, so we either fought governments that we felt and our clients felt were doing bad things to the environment, or we helped defend governments, uh, government entities that were doing the right thing, but were being sued by property owners or other folks like that. And in one instance, my firm represented a uh, local government uh, in Marin County uh, that owned some land that they used as a hiking trail, but it was underutilized because it was difficult to access. So they, so on government property, they were going to put in, at no small expense, but not at a huge expense, uh, a small parking lot at the trailhead uh, so people would be able to access it. Uh, there was a wealthy property owner who lived, who owned the adjoining parcel to this area that the government owned, who was not particularly happy about the idea of having a bunch of hikers and hippies uh, wandering around his property. Uh, and so he sued the government on a number of different, utilizing a number of different laws that were available to him. But one of the things that he did to the local government was made a number of Public Records Act requests under California law, uh, which allows for a private individual to say to the government, give me all of the documents that are relating to this particular act that you're doing. Uh, And the compliance uh, with that law for this local government that was just trying to do what it felt was the right thing was was enormous, Uh, you know, on a relatively small scale, uh, obviously, compared to the amount of money that um, the Pentagon pay, uh, spends on uh, trying to comply with the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, this was nothing, but for a local government, this was expensive, and it raised the price of government for the uh, for the local government and for local taxpayers, uh, which was precisely what the landowner knew and hoped to accomplish in doing so. So, one of the things that I took from that is that uh, transparency is not a costless. Uh, exercise. Uh, and one shouldn't, one, one doesn't have to be Dick Cheney 
in order to conclude that, well, you know, sometimes open government uh, has unintended consequences that are not actually good for government. In the first part of the book, you discuss pro-transparency movements, as well as the reasons the state may justify keeping some information secret. What are the pros and cons of government transparency? Well, as I just suggested, the cons of uh, uh, transparency, and let me start with that, because those are uh, those tend to be undervalued, and sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. Uh, there is you know, some costs with respect to some of the most important things that government does, uh, including national security and law enforcement, where for government to be forced to disclose excessive information relating to these government functions, it will adversely affect the government's ability to keep the nation secure, to, uh, to enforce criminal laws and the like. Um, so there's that element of it, which is the most obvious. But there are other things that uh, uh, are, uh, even if you're you know, a, a pacifist and someone who doesn't, who is skeptical of government's law enforcement function and its exercise of its police powers, um, there's the fact that individuals, private individuals, interact with government all the time and give it information, uh, and that information should be kept private. It's important for individuals, uh, uh, particularly private individuals, but also corporations who interact with government to know that the information that they give government will be secure. Uh, So there's that. There's the idea that a government uh, that is going to uh, do difficult things, uh, deliberate on important but complex policy matters, uh, be able to do so and to deliberate in a manner that is somewhat secure so that they can um, uh, they can consider in draft form certain ideas that they may not end up actually implementing but uh, would like to at least consider. Uh, so these are among the most prominent arguments against transparency. The most common arguments for transparency are that it's absolutely essential for democracy that voters who play the essential role of um, uh, of deciding who it is who who will rule them uh, be able to do so with full information about what the government does uh, about uh, what the current government has achieved or not achieved uh, deciding what's scandalous or, or not other things like that uh, so there's that part of it um, there is the part of it that says that uh, after being uh, even beyond elections, uh, being able to hold accountable uh, the different parts of government, particularly within the executive branch, knowing what individual agencies are doing uh, will be important uh, in order to interact with those agencies uh, and in order, even uh, apart from the electoral process, be able to hold individual civil servants and an entire government entity uh, accountable for the uh, for the decisions that they make. Uh, so those things are important. And then there's just a sort of general efficiency argument that with that level of accountability, both at the electoral level and just even apart from elections, being able to know what it is that they're doing and call them out when they're doing something wrong. Um, when government knows that they are going to be held accountable, uh, either at the ballot box or through the press or through just general petitions to the government, uh, they will act more in the public's best interest. Uh, and they will be a more functional and efficient government as a consequence of that. So that's, that's really the main set of arguments uh, in favor of transparency. You already mentioned in your in your intro a little bit about FOIA and the impact you saw in California. And in the book, you also discuss 
just the genesis of the law itself and sunshine laws in the different states. Um, You also talk about the bureaucracy that's sprung up in support of these laws. What do you think the future of FOIA looks like, especially in this era of open data? Uh, well, let me let me talk about a couple of different things uh, there uh, and unpack your question. First of all, thinking about FOIA and FOIA's success, not only within the United States but also internationally, uh, is it, it's been remarkable the extent to which it is a, a law that didn't even exist 50 years ago is now deemed so much a part of the way in which private individuals interact with the government, uh, that um, it's it's not constitutional, but it, it's almost sort of quasi-constitutional. We believe that we have a right to petition the government to disclose information. And that's at the federal government level, at state government level, and even at local governments. Uh, and that has been remarkable. And that's not going away. Uh, each successive administration that comes into power at the presidential level, at the gubernatorial level, at uh, the level of mayors, uh, will, uh, when they are running for office, particularly if it's looking for a shift in party, uh, will decry the extent to which there is too much secrecy and will embrace the Freedom of Information Act and the state versions of the Freedom of Information Act uh, as the key means by which we can find out information about what those bums are doing. Uh, and uh, that level of support usually by those who are opposed to whoever's in government, will never go away. Uh, And so I think FOIA is a very stable part of our governmental ecosystem, uh, and largely for the better, I think, as a consequence of that. However, our understanding of information has changed, and that's the part of your question where you talk about open data. The Freedom of Information Act imagines, for the most part, certainly the parts that people understand uh, best and utilize most, uh, the Freedom of Information Act was about requesting information from government where government has not disclosed it. But government keeps a large amount of data uh, and obviously increasingly in digital form. Uh, that the So the argument goes, it need not keep in the way that it has kept them and people should not have to request it. Government should uh, be be required and should, you know, as a matter of sort of a voluntary act, make its the the enormous amounts of data that it collects available to individuals, to corporations, uh, to utilize in order to build data sets, in order to hold government accountable and the like. Uh, that is, government is itself a, one of our main repositories of big data, and it should be plugged in to all of the sources and resources for managing big data uh, that uh, private entities and individuals have developed. Uh, and those two different views of open government are generally consistent with each other. The idea on the one hand, I as an individual can ask for an individual piece of information or an investigative journalist can ask for some piece of some set of documents from uh, a government entity. And uh, the idea that government should be required or should choose to make its enormous data sets available uh, on demand. Uh, uh, those two things are not necessarily intention, but the the universe of advocates who push for one or the other of them are not always the same entities, and their visions of 
the government and the relationship between the public and the government are in slight tension. Uh, one is more uh, at the level of I have an individual need for information for some for for some investigative reason as a journalist or to you know get a big story that uh, might have some great market value or because I'm an individual person who wants information. And the idea that uh, I want to get uh, a large amount of data from government in order to package it um, uh, and make it useful for people and possibly to resell it as, as an app or as part of an app uh, or as part of a website and, and uh, to sell it to the general public, to sell it to individual companies and the like. Uh, and as I say, those two things are not necessarily intention, but they are different views of government and different views of information. Uh, and I think that they will both uh, continue to uh, be somewhat intention. The Obama administration uh, very, very strongly embraced the big data idea. Uh, that was its vision of its open government initiative and had a lot of personnel and a lot of smart people uh, and uh, technical folks working on that issue. They proved to be, uh, the Obama administration proved to be less successful, at least from investigative journalists and advocates' perspective, in, uh, in changing anything relating to the Freedom of Information Act's requester version uh, of uh, transparency. Uh, the Trump administration seems to be less interested in disclosing uh, uh, big data. Um, a lot of informational websites and uh, simply the, the availability of information that has been collected in the past and the continuing collection of information uh, by federal agencies has gone down. Uh, under the Trump administration, uh, and a lot of the initiatives that the Obama administration engaged in have sort of, you know, been allowed to wither and die uh, under the Trump administration. Uh, FOIA compliance, I don't think, is any better <laughs> under the Trump administration than it was under the uh, under the Obama administration, and it's probably been a little bit worse. Well, I think the point that you um, just raised leads to the the second section of your book, and you raise a couple of questions. <laughs> about the the practicality of control and use of information. And especially with these large data sets, this big data, um, at what point can the public interact with this information in a meaningful way? Well, um, let me answer your question by sort of taking a step back and looking at the, the larger theoretical argument that I'm making in that part, which is that I think that both the traditional freedom of information vision of uh, disclosure and the the Obama administration's open government initiative and the big data idea uh, advance from a shared proposition, which is that uh, the state is a repository of information, uh, that it holds its information securely, but its information is holdable. It's, it, it exists somewhere. There's an archive somewhere. Uh, and that what the law needs to do or what technology needs to do is to take that archive and make it available to the public, uh, whether in bespoke requests from individuals or investigative journalists or in the large scale of big data that is available for uh, download and uh, manipulation and, and use uh, by those who would use it. Uh, and that is a conception uh, that is the, the basis of you know, what I characterize as the transparency fix. And it's, it is a vision and a theory of how the state works that is 
uh, very much akin to the theory that the state needs to control information and not disclose uh, that which could harm the nation, whether via um, uh, national security breaches or law enforcement issues or other things like that, which similarly views the state as being a producer and repository of information also assumes that there is an archive uh, uh, of information that the state controls and ultimately assumes that that archive needs to be protected uh, and can be controlled. Um, so in both instances, there's the idea of information control, that the state is a repository of information, that it has information, and that it needs to control it. If you're on the disclosure end of things, you believe that that control can be utilized for purposes of allowing the public to see the information, if you're on the other side, uh, then you view it as the state should and needs to be able to control that information in order to keep that information from coming out. Now, the third element of this, so we've got, we've got the government and we've got information. The third element of this is the receiver element of it, uh, the idea that there's something that is going to be communicated to someone. Uh, and in all of these instances, the idea is that the public uh, uh, defined in a lot of different ways, uh, depending upon the kind of information and how it is, how the information is disclosed, is sitting there waiting to receive this information and is capable of interpreting it, uh, understanding it, and then utilizing it in a way that is rational and predictable. Uh, and this is true whether you believe in disclosure. So the idea of a transparency fix assumes that if you disclose this information, the public will utilize it to advance democracy and hold government accountable. Uh, and if you're on the secrecy end of things, you're worried that there is an audience out there of, um, uh, of enemies of the state, whether these are other nations, whether these are terrorist groups, uh, whether these are criminals, uh, who will take this information and be able to immediately and perfectly utilize it in a way to harm the state. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think that that is wrong necessarily. But I think the assumption that that is the way information works just does not seem to understand both the complexity of how information works, the complexity of the state, the complexity of our media, uh, uh, in our media environment, the the you know frequent failures of um, uh, of uh, national security entities both within our country and those who we conceive of as potential enemies. Uh, intelligence services, our own and those of others, uh, it just doesn't seem to work. Uh, in the way in which the theory uh, would have us believe. With the, the questions you're kind of asking are, can the state actually control this information? And if the public receives it, are they going to be able to pick out that thread from it? And it kind of ties back to when you're talking about your first book, you discuss conspiracies a little bit in this one and the surplus of information. And just because you have all of this data, can you actually pull together the full picture? And conversely, can the state actually keep control of all of this information kind of in this day and age? Well, and, you know, the idea that there is a picture from all this information is itself strikes me kind of flawed in the same way that the idea that there is a state that is acting in a completely concentrated and intelligent and knowing and knowable way seems deeply problematic for anyone who has worked in uh, for anyone who's worked in any sort of large scale bureaucracy, whether in the academy or in the corporate world or wherever, you know, 
large organizations uh, are not nearly as competent as we assume them to be. And that's, uh, or, or, you know, honestly, on the other side, they're not nearly as incompetent as we assume them to be. They're just complex organisms uh, that often, you know, will use information, but not all of information, will, mis- will themselves misinterpret information. So the idea, for example, that if only we can get access to all of the files relating to name whatever important historic event or policy proposition, if we can just get all of the files relating to that, we will understand why and how decisions got made perfectly. Uh, Strikes me as false. We will know more, and that's important. Uh, So that's why disclosure is important. Uh, But we we will not necessarily come to an answer as to how government actually worked and how it did the things that it has done simply by getting all that information. For sure. Yeah, data doesn't always tell the whole story. <laughs> and, the, and the interpretation of it is, is itself, um, it, it, it's not perfect. I mean, it is, uh, everything is as much a craft as it is a science. Well, in the final part of your book, you look at some case studies and you draw some interesting conclusions about how contested control of information can actually overshadow substantive policy discussions. How did you choose the cases that you put in the book and what do you think makes them important in this dialogue about transparency? Well, I was to an extent attacking a um, a straw straw man, straw horse, straw person in this, which is the idea that there, that transparency fixes things and that secrecy fixes things. And it's not clear to me that anyone absolutely believes it, but in, uh, in policy discussions about disclosure and about secrecy, they are the things that are, that are brought out as being the, uh, the values and the concerns that we have to further. So for example, one of the chapters is about, um, uh, the the mega leaks uh, of uh, first WikiLeaks and the uh, uh, Chelsea Manning uh, materials uh, that uh, WikiLeaks released, and then the Edward Snowden leaks. Uh, the assumption on both sides uh, was that, on the one hand, if you were in favor of these leaks, uh, your argument would be that these leaks are incredibly important because government is engaged in activities that the public doesn't know. Uh, and uh, the public can't hold government accountable for the things that it doesn't know. So therefore, if we disclose this information, government will be held more accountable and the people will finally act as democratic citizens in the way that they need to. The argument on the other side uh, was that this information is classified at one level or another, and uh, our disclosure of this information, first of all, isn't required as a matter of law. And secondly, if it were to be disclosed, uh, we would adversely affect our ability to, you know, fill in the blank, engage in uh, diplomatic uh, relations with other countries, uh, uh, engage our war, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and future wars, uh, uh, and uh, engage in uh, the key uh, aspects of electronic surveillance that are absolutely essential for keeping our nation secure. Uh, so, these are the arguments that get trotted out. They get trotted out as a matter of law. They get trotted out as a matter of politics and as a matter of policy. And so it seemed to me in looking at these instances that this was a great, that these are great natural experiments. So if 
Um, if Julian Assange is correct in his assumption that uh, disclosure of otherwise classified information would uh, uh, positively affect our governance and our government, uh, then we should see that. If, on the other hand, the disclosure of this information about diplomacy uh, and about the conduct of of the U.S. during wartime in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, would absolutely harm our ability to engage in uh, uh, engage in diplomatic relations and and harm our military efforts. And so I looked at the public source, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the 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 publicly available, the open source intelligence on these issues uh, to try to see, okay, you know, what were the costs. Uh, besides what, uh, for example, Secretary of State Clinton uh, said regarding the disclosure of the cables, the diplomatic cables, and Secretary Gates uh, regarding the disclosure of the war logs, what were the costs uh, that came from this? And, you know, they were material. Uh, uh, a lot of it could well be classified and something that I might not know. And it's clear that there were costs. I would not want to say that they were that, that there was no cost uh, as a consequence of these leaks. Uh, there was both the financial costs of dealing with the implications and, and potentially the human and personnel costs uh, of dealing with the fact that um, sources of information were disclosed, anonymous sources of information were disclosed, uh, certain diplomats had to be recalled as a consequence of this, other things like that. Um, and you know, it's quite possible that people lost lives, although even in the Chelsea Manning trial, uh, there was not evidence presented uh, for the court-martial, there was not evidence presented of anyone having died directly from this, uh, from the disclosures. Um, so there were costs, but they weren't nearly as astronomical as they were claimed to be. And on the positive side, it was hard to say, particularly with the WikiLeaks materials, that there was any significant public benefits in terms of sort of democratic governance. The main uh, political movement that came about uh, around the time of and soon after many of the Chelsea Manning leaks was the Tea Party movement uh, in the, uh, among the Republican uh, among Republican act, act, uh, activists and on the Republican base, which had nothing to do with WikiLeaks, nothing whatsoever to do with WikiLeaks. Uh, so the the Snowden releases are a little bit more complicated because there the, there was a specific policy issue involved. Snowden did a lot more of curation of what it was that he disclosed as opposed to what WikiLeaks did, which was not just data dumping, but a fair bit of it, uh, uh, and a fair bit of, it, uh, of an enormous and wide-ranging amount of data uh, and information. Uh, so the um, so Snowden had a uh, Snowden could argue that he did spur on uh, more informed conversation, though not so much at the public level, more at the level of interest groups, particularly privacy-focused interest groups, who now knew much more about a program that they barely knew about uh, before. And it all came about around the time of the reauthorization of the Patriot Act, uh, which had real consequences for the, the, uh, for the policy discussion. It's not clear how enormously it affected the policy discussion, but it clearly had some effects. Um, so, the upshot of this and why I chose this as an example is that there is a huge amount of rhetoric and imagination about what information can do, uh, what in, the role information plays within the state and what its disclosure can do uh, for society and for the, 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 the protection of the public. Uh, and as it turns out, it's not nearly as great as one imagined. 
Um, and so therefore, the extent to which information, in fact, can't be disclosed, um, because as we see, information leaks, uh, it is not necessarily either the boon or the bane uh, that it would otherwise appear to be. Uh, so that, that I, I think, is one of the mo- more interesting uh, case studies that I, uh, that I looked at. What I also thought was interesting about the the case study you just mentioned is you identify this cycle of information sharing and then pulling it back. And especially with, um, I think with the Chelsea Manning leaks, you talk about the, that her ability to access that information came as a result of reforms after 9-11 that showed that siloed information was making it difficult for government to be effective. And so um, you talk about kind of the the opening and the sharing and then the closing after after an incident like a leak. And I thought that cycle of of openness and then and then shutting it down even within the state was an interesting point. Yeah, I, so the uh, this goes to the idea of the fix is not available for us. Uh, the more you silo information, uh, the more you protect information and allow fewer and fewer uh, civil servants and uh, political appointees access to it, um, the more difficult it will be to function as government. So one of the conclusions of the 9-11 Commission was that the the, the extent to which the uh, information was not shared among different entities at the federal, state, and local level, but especially within the federal government, um, uh, all assigned to doing similar and related tasks, but all of them having their own turf and their own, you know, generally understandable desire to protect their own information, harmed our ability to protect ourselves uh, uh, from terrorist attack. Uh, so we have to reform the intelligence agencies and the intelligence community and break down the barriers that that make it difficult for, for example, local law enforcement to have access to some of this classified information. But the more you open it up, uh, the more uh, lower level personnel within the Department of Defense, for example, have access to information, the more likely you're going to see leaks. Uh, and so there, there is no way to solve that problem. There's no perfect way to solve that problem. It just is there's no way to reorganize something as complex as the Department of Defense or our entire national security um, uh, bureaucracy. There's no, there's no way to perfectly engage in that. It, it's just too big. There are too many entities involved. The problems that they are tasked with solving are too difficult to solve uh, to, to fully fix that. And so you, you, you plug one leak and something else opens up, or you fix one thing and some new problem opens up somewhere else. And it's an inevitable cycle. Yeah, I think um, another case study or, or selection of case studies I thought was interesting in this section was about redaction. And um, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about redaction in general. I think, does it impact the credibility of the state when information is available in other formats, but um, the state is perceived as being you know, unnecessarily secretive? Uh, part some of the points you pulled out in your book about uh, Valerie Plame and some some of the other um, instances of kind of prominent redaction stood stood out, and I, it also made me think of Bob Woodward's book on kind of post Nixon government credibility and um, how those choices impact how citizens see government. Well, redaction is. Uh, 
in some ways required under the Freedom of Information Act in the way it's been interpreted by courts, uh, which is that uh, government entities can't simply say, well, we're not going to let you look at that document uh, because it's classified. Uh, it needs to, it, it can do that, but it, but it needs ultimately to, um, to, to disclose some of these documents uh, and uh, keep secret some parts of it, those parts of it that are classified. If they're unclassified portions of these documents, they need to be made available. So the what you get when you uh, request a document that is redacted is a document that has black bars across part of it. And uh, generally, what the government entity has to do, what the agency has to do, is to identify the specific exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act that justify those kinds of redactions. So what you end up getting as a consequence of that is knowing precisely what it is that you don't know, uh, which is you can see these black lines on a page, which are in some ways an affront, even more of an affront, at least viscerally, than not getting the document at all. Uh, but the government can feel secure that when it has blacked out these lines or these whole pages, that it has kept this information secret. The problem, however, is that there are lots of different sources for this information. And moreover, even if there aren't uh, completely um, uh, perfect sources for this information, you can speculate, uh, especially if it's someone's identity who's been, uh, that's been redacted. You can speculate as to who it is that, uh, who it is that individual is. But with, Val with Valerie Plame's uh, memoir of her life within the CIA, uh, what's, what was so you know, in a sense, wonderful for someone with a good sense of humor. Uh, what was so wonderful about it was that uh, the uh, the CIA, as part of uh, uh, Ms. Plame's contractual uh, uh, employment relationship with with the CIA, required that she um, uh, she submit for review uh, uh, the, her memoir, anything that she was going to write, uh, and they decided uh, based upon. Um, what they knew about what it is that she had done while she was an employee of the CIA, that there were certain parts of it that uh, were classified and uh, could not be revealed. Uh, and they blacked out large portions of it. Uh, unfortunately for the CIA, many of the things that they had blacked out were matters of public record or uh, either official public record or they were things that anyone could learn uh, simply from open sources, like her family, for example, where she was posted was uh, was redacted. Uh, how she met her husband, uh, which which had been redacted, but which was available through his own memoir, which had been published a few years previously. So, what uh, uh, what uh, Plame and her publisher decided to do was to have uh, even have after the portions of the book that she had written, parts of which had been redacted, large portions of which had been redacted, and afterward uh, written by someone else who was not bound by uh, Plame's contractual relationship and obligations to the CIA, uh, who could just simply do straight reporting of what it was that uh, her life included and answer uh, and reveal some of the mysteries from the black lines of uh, Plame's life uh, as the CIA imposed them. So it, it's just a really, really rich example of how difficult redacting information ends up being because there are lots of other sources of information that you can come to um, if you know where to look 
and this happens with some frequency, whether by mistake or otherwise, where government attempts to redact information in one document, but it's available from another agency or it's available from open sources and things like that. And in doing so, the act of redacting itself uh, makes the credibility of the entity who's redacting look really, really bad. You look silly if you have redacted information uh, that is otherwise easily available. So if transparency or secrecy, neither are the fix and neither are, are possible, what is the solution? Well, there is no clear solution. That is one of the sad things about this book and why I fail as a law professor to provide the clear fix to something that lacks a fix, which is what theoretically I'm supposed to be doing because I'm a lawyer and so lawyers are supposed to come up with answers for things. Uh, So I don't really have any kind of uh, universal answer. There are some tweaks that uh, we can do uh, to some programs that I think have shown to work reasonably well within government entities uh, to have some sort of accountability within the entities themselves through inspectors general and other sorts of entities that can uh, review the operations of a particular agency. Uh, you know, we see this with the Mueller investigation is a good example. The special counsel is a, is a very good example of uh, a entity within the government uh, that has some degree of freedom and credibility to investigate things the government has done or done by by uh, government officials uh, in ways that would not otherwise be available and and you know theoretically disclose that information uh, in a way that will hopefully be digestible and will hopefully be credible though obviously one of the things that the Trump uh, that hard to say the the Trump administration, but those who are fans of uh, Trump have attempted to do is even before any information comes out to question the credibility of it. So there's that. There's the idea that uh, the information's value Uh, both for the government and for the government's enemies uh, uh, lessens considerably over time, putting some sort of mechanical time limit on the amount of, uh, on how long the government can hold on to secrets and hold on to information, I think would be a very good thing. Uh, But to me, the the most important thing to think about uh, if you're, if you are um, swayed at all by my uh, argument, is that maybe information isn't quite so essential to making political decisions. Just as an example, uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the relatively large, though not huge, uh, uh, concerns within the 2016 presidential election and in the aftermath has been uh, uh, candidate Trump and now President Trump's unwillingness to disclose his tax returns, uh, which. Um, uh, contradicts uh, existing um, uh, norms of behavior by uh, those who are running for elected office. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are a couple of things that we can do about that. Uh, states have the opportunity to impose um, requirements for those who want to be on their ballot. So you could work at the, at the state level to try to uh, uh, require uh, the disclosure of tax returns if Congress isn't going to require it. Uh, but the other thing to do is to just recognize the fact that do we need the tax returns in order to know that there is something potentially troubling uh, in the conflicts of interest uh, between uh, Donald Trump, the businessman, and Donald Trump, the president? Um, and if that's so, then you know perhaps we should assume the worst. Uh, if Trump is not willing to disclose his tax returns to make us feel better, then we should feel worse. Uh, and 
the American public should feel worse and Congress should feel worse. And its failure to do so is simply a matter of politics, not a matter of information. Uh, so the question isn't, can Donald Trump disclose his tax returns? It is, it is the question of the conflicts of interest that are engaged in that and what it is that we can glean from that when it comes time to face the 2020 elections or the 2018 midterms for that, for that matter, if we care about Congress holding uh, President Trump accountable. Well, Mark, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we can let you go, can you tell us what you are working on now? Uh, well, I am. I'm debating between either doing a third edition of uh, my book on conspiracy theories because what I found, uh, so my the first edition came out in 1999. About seven years after that, uh, six years after that, there were the conspiracy theory that was gripping the nation uh, was the 9/11 truth movement, which obviously I could not presciently predict in 1999. Uh, so I did a new edition relating to that. And now we're in the world of Donald Trump, uh, where I think if anything, conspiracy theories are more pervasive. Uh, uh, and not only that, but arguably conspiracies are more pervasive given our our, our partisan divide uh, than they have been. And so that's been one of the things that I've been debating between either doing a third edition of the book or doing a smaller book that is just looking at the extent to which conspiracies and conspiracy theories uh, relating to Donald Trump and sort of in the Trump era have become even more uh, at the center of our political discourse. And what does that mean for our politics? Well, thank you again for being on the show today. Mark Fenster's book, The Transparency Fix, Secrets, Leaks, and Uncontrollable Government Information is available now from Stanford University Press. Thanks, Beth. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.